folks, today is May 20th, which also happens to be our season finale. And if it's Friday, then this is the delve. Welcome back everyone, this is the finale of season 5, and while I would love to dive into all things Republican crazy, today we have something very interesting for you. We're going to go a different direction for this episode and delve into the fascinating world of psychedelics. The year was 1969. Almost half a million people had converged on a small dairy farm in upstate New York for three days of peace and music. It was the defining moment of a countercultural revolution headlined by Janis Joplin, The Who, The Grateful Dead, Carlos Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Sweetwater, Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker, and others. The Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement weighed heavily on people's minds. Woodstock was a free love, anti-establishment space. And a lot of people were on drugs including Carlos Santana. Here he is explaining his trip. When I started playing, of course, the, the guitar neck, uh, the neck and the guitar started wavering, you know, like a snake. And I was like, oh, uh-oh. Uh, so I just started making faces because I was trying to keep it tame, you know. I was trying to keep it from slithering all over the place. While psychedelics were mainly associated with hippies, there were scientific studies going on at this time as well. Between 1950 and 1965, some 40,000 patients had been prescribed LSD therapy as a treatment for neurosis, schizophrenia, and psychopathy. LSD was even prescribed to children with autism. Research into the potential therapeutic effects of LSD and other hallucinogens had produced over 1,000 scientific papers and six international conferences. It looked like these substances would change the field of psychotherapy forever. But that all changed when in 1970, psychedelics were made illegal. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. The government designated all psychedelics as Schedule One drugs, or drugs which have no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. This placed psychedelics on the same level as drugs such as heroin. For context, cocaine, methamphetamine, and fentanyl are all classified as Schedule II substances, meaning that they have a high potential for abuse but have some medical value. However, in recent years, the conversation has changed. No longer are psychedelics seen as something associated with hippies. Instead, new and very promising research has shown that psychedelics can treat depression end-of-life anxiety, and addiction. 2006 study at John Hopkins found that magic mushrooms can induce mystical-type experiences, having substantial and sustained personal meaning and spiritual significance. In 2016, a separate study found that a single dose of psilocybin, the hallucinogenic compound in magic mushrooms, 
eased end-of-life anxiety in terminal cancer patients for up to six months. To help us navigate this space, I sat down with Joe and Jess. Joe is a therapist that specializes in psychedelic medicine. Jess is the founder of the Rutgers Psychedelic Society and current writer for Entheoscope magazine, the publication that focuses on psychedelics. Together, we dive into personal experiences, the national conversation, and predictions for the future of this re-emerging space. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Delve. Today, we have Joe and Jess here with us, and I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Uh, But before we jump into all things mushrooms and psychedelics, I want Jess and Joe, can you guys introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself? Do you want to go first, Joe? Sure, I can go first. Yeah, my name is Joe Young. I'm a licensed clinical social worker working out of Durango, Colorado. I'm also a psychedelic integration therapist, and this is a new venture for me. Um, And yeah, this is a new world opening up. And I feel really passionate that this can be an alternative form of healing for a lot of people um, in the US and worldwide. Um, So yeah, really excited to have this conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. Perfect. And Jess? Uh, So my name is Jess. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm quite active in harm reduction and psychedelic spaces. Uh, I'm a little bit all over the place, meaning I'm just broadly involved with a lot of different organizations. The sort of highlight reel of that is uh, I founded the Rutgers Psychedelic Society while I was a student, uh, and then I went on to briefly be involved with Decriminalized Nature. Uh, Right now, I co-produce a psychedelic magazine called Entheoscope, which is targeted at college students. Uh, And most recently, I work with a ketamine clinic. Uh, I write about accessibility to treatment. Uh, I help make uh, information transparent and public. And just generally, I write about mental health and how psychedelics can play into that. Okay, great. Um, Jess, I want to start off with you. So in recent years, the media and advocates for psychedelic medicine have claimed that magic mushrooms can help with ailments um, such as depression, anxiety, PTSD. Do you have any personal experience with magic mushrooms where you experienced a reduction in in any, uh, I guess, kind of like whether mental illness or some type of anxiety, anything like that? Yeah, I do. So I'm very cautious to not frame it as um, a sort of magic bullet, meaning that you take mushrooms and then you're suddenly cured and all of your problems are gone. Uh, But I do have a history of depression and trauma that was quite severe. Uh, And after I started taking mushrooms, it uh, there was a good eight months where just from one mushroom trip, I felt completely fine and in love with life. Uh, So I, I don't think that magic mushrooms are a magic bullet that will fix everything, but they can be extremely helpful. And in my experience, they have been. And then I I was reading earlier, preparing for this one, I guess, session with mushrooms can kind of lead to this, I guess, state, a a healthier state for eight to nine months, right? Yeah. And that was the same experience I had is I had this one trip, um, And it's interesting because if you compare it to something like SSRIs, uh, if you take Prozac, you feel better 
not because of, uh, you know, some revelation you've had in your mind. It's because your brain neurochemistry has kind of been sorted out and made healthier. That's also true for mushrooms, but I really felt like what happened to me is I consciously had all of these realizations that my, the things that bothered me, I didn't have to hold on to, and I didn't have to be so upset. And there were things in life that I could embrace and enjoy. Um, so yeah, I really felt that, uh, mushrooms lasted a long time for me. Uh, long after I stopped taking them, I still felt the effects. Okay. Joe, I want to hop over to you. Can you explain the science behind this? Why, why do people have less depressive symptoms after taking psychedelics? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and to, to your point, Jess, I think that's a really, uh, that's kind of the mainstream way to guide people that are going through depression or are working through some traumas is usually here, here's an antidepressant, um, hope that you do well and, um, pair some therapy with it. And what you experience is kind of this other side of it, of you're going to sit in a journey space or somebody that's holding space for you or doing it independently. And it's a very, yeah, different experience um, in the science, although it's still being researched and understood fully, um, it lets you look at your life in a different light, in a different way, in a reframed way um, where you don't have all your old patterns coming up, all your um, usually like neural pathways that we're so used to going to and don't even realize that we're going to in our own brains it helps you like zoom out and understand, um, yeah, whether you're thinking of a trauma or the depression that you're experiencing in your life, um, in a different way. And you can feel the difference there and it sticks with you. Um, just like you said, Jess, it can stick with you for a long time. There's studies that are, you know, a year plus, um, and some of their studies that are you know, three months, it sticks with you, but not in the same way. And so, yeah, I think that's a big point is like letting you zoom out in a way that, um, you know, just talk therapy or taking antidepressants doesn't allow you to experience in that way. I want to talk a little bit about set setting and intention. Um, as an integration therapist, Joe, you're probably very familiar with the term set setting and intention. Can you explain to our listeners what those terms are and how they relate to psychedelic usage? Absolutely. Yeah, this is bread and butter um, because as I explore this topic more and have so many conversations, um, people bring up to me, hey, I took this, I took mushrooms once or I took MDMA once. And I didn't feel good. I felt really scary. And that is usually the fear that comes up with a lot of people is, um, yeah, I had this experience once I fell out of control and I don't want to feel like that. And so there is this resistance to wanting to go into a psychedelic experience because you feel out of control. And with integration therapy, I, I think of it like pre-integration and integration, right? So um, or intention setting is that pre-integration of what are your intentions going into this journey? Is it to focus on a certain trauma that you want to find a different way to relate with? Or is it 
wanting to go towards um, connecting more with your ancestors. I mean, there's lots of intentions, right? That we all human beings can put into this, but I believe it is extremely, if not essential for you to set those intentions for yourself before a psychedelic journey um, and know that you're set in setting of when you're taking these psychedelics, um, these medicines, whatever you want to refer to them as, um, that you know what's going to be around you, who's going to be around you, and so that you can lay out the space in a really safe way, as well as if something really harsh comes up, like how do you want the people around you to react? How do you want to cope in that moment with yourself, whether that's through breathing, walking around, changing the music, that's when set and setting, like look at the room that you're in right now. I mean, this is the set, right? And what people are around you right now, that's the setting of like, how does that energy feel? How does that vibe feel around you? Envision that space. What do you want it to look like for you? Because that's really important, especially in a really vulnerable state when taking psychedelics, um, that you have all those resources available to you. And then moving on to integration. Okay, so I think of it like a snow globe. You're just this little person inside and a psychedelic experience is shaking that snow globe up. And all of these memories and experiences are shaking up all around you that you maybe haven't thought of in a long time. Um, in this integration process is when all of the pieces of the snow globe start to settle back down. And the intention here is to have them settle in a different way so that you're able to live your life in a way that is more true to yourself, more aligned in your values. Um, so you can, yeah, live more in the life that you want to. And so that can help through working with in creative process is how I like to do it. If a person likes to paint or create songs or um, certain exercise routines, like it can include a whole array of things, but I focus specifically on those pinpoint experiences that you had during that psychedelic journey and trying to express them out into your life so that you can live out whatever came up you felt during that journey. Um, I know that was a lot. So <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I actually think it's really interesting. It sounds kind of like it might be more useful if you had some type of guide with you <laughs> to kind of like walk you through all of these things to make sure that you're processing, I guess, all of these feelings and thoughts correctly. Jess, I want to pop back over to you. Have you used this idea of, you know, set setting an intention is, is, is that something that you've. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, absolutely. Um, so first I just want to touch on what you just said about um, using a guide versus just, you know, tripping recreationally with your friends in your own home. Uh, right, I think right. that's a huge point of debate. Uh, many people who are arguing for psilocybin legalization are saying you should only be able to do this with a, a trained professional. You know, it's more dangerous if we do this outside in our backyards with our friends. Uh, and I think that that is so highly individualized. Um, I think you are more likely to have a bad experience if you are by yourself and haven't done any research and don't know what you're getting yourself into. 
But I also think uh, you can have really powerful experience in those intimate environments uh, with people you care about who are also uh, having a psychedelic experience. I really liked what Joe said about uh, how vulnerable you are during the psychedelic experience. My personal rule is I will not trip with anyone who I cannot fully have a mental breakdown in front of. Um, you know, if I can't unearth a trauma and sob in front of you, then I'm <laughs> not interested in tripping. Um, my my most powerful and life-changing experiences were the the trips that i spent days or weeks planning with my friends uh we had playlists art supplies uh you know we would decorate the space with books of poetry that we loved um just sort of items that were sacred or special to us um and that compared to uh you know there was a time i took acid and walked around new brunswick those are completely different types of experiences any trip I've ever had that I really felt like it changed my life was when I put the time into creating a setting that I knew would be conducive to having a, a good and safe and secure experience. How long does a mushroom trip last? So typically a mushroom trip lasts about six to eight hours. Uh, there's also, uh, there's a way to prepare them. It's called a lemon tech where you soak it in lemon juice and basically the psilocybin is converted to uh, psilocin. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and that makes it last four to six hours. It's a shorter but stronger trip. Um, so it's a so way to reduce the time. Right. So depending wow. on how you prepare them, it can last anywhere from four to eight hours. Okay. All right. Okay. Next question. <laughs> can you take too many? Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That is, it's so highly uh, individual. There are people who taking half a gram would be too much. Um, and then there are people who take 10 grams and have a really good time. Oh, wow. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, compared to alcohol, it, every person has about the same limit. This quantity of alcohol will hurt you. I don't believe that that's true for mushrooms. I think it's, it's a much more mental experience than it is, you know, something like alcohol, you have to worry about how it's physically impacting you. Um, the, the typical dose is around three and a half grams, but there are people who will have a really bad time on that dose. And there are people who will need more than that. Uh, so it really depends on your experience, how your body reacts to it and things like that. And that's why it's so important to go up gradually uh you know if you start with mushrooms don't jump in and have five grams your first time because you have right. no idea if you are going to be one of those people who your body has a really strong reaction to it okay joe what are the major safety concerns surrounding psychedelics how can users consume responsibly yeah i think just brings up these really important points of um, dosage and I, I'm not condoning this and I've heard of people taking microdoses in the past to see how that experience lands for them in like preparing for maybe a more macro dose journey. And so I think in, in this, um, in that space, you can know how your personal body reacts, um, and how that um, come up might feel. So I think of it like um, like the major safety concerns. I think, sorry, I'm kind of going a little bit over the place right oh, now, okay. but one um, 
thing I continually hear come up is, you know, what if I have a psychotic break or what if the journey doesn't end? Um, those kind of being these two common categories of um, people being fearful of psychedelics. And my experience and research um, shows that nothing's going to come up that wasn't already there. So if you have a history of bipolar um, diagnosis in your family, or if you have um, personality disorders in your family, but you're, you yourself are not experiencing it, yet you, then you go and take a high dose of mushrooms, there might be some psychotic um, tendencies that might come up. And that can be really scary and really like, oh my gosh, like I will never be the same. Um, fears that can come up during that episode, or during the experience. And I think it's really important for people, just as Jess was saying, like I wouldn't trip in front of anybody um, unless I could have a full breakdown because you want people there that can hold that space with you. Of like, yeah, this is really scary right now and you're gonna be okay. I think that's a really important piece. Nobody has ever died from specifically taking psychedelics and you need that person there, that support um, that can tell you it's gonna be okay and be fully okay to break down in front of them. Um, and so, yeah, what I was saying is like, there's the most structured setting um, in the legalization process, you know, we are trying to find those spaces of, um, before you take a psychedelic, um, what is your medical history looking in your family background of mental health and what does that look like? I think those are all really important pieces. I don't want to outlaw it to anybody of like, if you have, you know, bipolar disorder within your family, um, you should not take psychedelics. I think that is just kind of um, putting this in a box and there's lots of mental health um, disorders that exist for everybody and everybody's family. And so I think there just needs to be more research in this. And so those are kind of some of the um, things that come up when thinking about what health concerns or mental health concerns can come up. Obviously there's a whole other range when it comes to like health and blood pressure and all these things that are incorporated into um, like the MDMA trials and things like that. Um, but those are things that come up for me. If I could just, um, oh, yeah. sorry, can I just comment on what Joe said? Oh, for sure. So Joe, I really liked, uh, you mentioned that you need to trip in front of somebody who will help you feel safe uh, and tell you it's going to be okay, even though it's really scary right now. And I just wanted to point out that just because a, a psychedelic experience can feel that way, can feel very scary and overwhelming, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've had a bad trip. Uh, healing, I think, often has to look like purging yourself of all of these negative emotions and traumas that you don't let yourself confront in your daily life. So sometimes psychedelic, a psychedelic experience can look like sobbing on the ground and feeling this tremendous pain. And then you come out of it and you say, wow, I, I feel so much better. I feel like I understand my trauma. I understand my psyche and I feel like I can be a better person now. So I, I think it's important to keep in mind, uh, psilocybin it sort of has that asterisk attached to it um this might be scary this might be unpleasant 
but that's not synonymous with being a bad experience. Yeah, it encompasses both this like light and darkness. I've had people say to me before, oh, but it, it wasn't fun. I was crying. And yeah, I, I want to emphasize that, Jess, of taking psychedelics encompasses everything in life. And in life, there's light, there's darkness, and that's natural to have this duality between the two. And you could experience immense happiness and gratitude and cry tears of happiness, but also, yeah, that painful, dark, like trudging through the mud um, thought is also a part of this experience. And I, yeah, I want to highlight that. Are there funny experiences? <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing, you know, kind of like more emotional and, you know, kind of like these therapeutic experiences are, are, you know, sometimes things just really funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I wish I could think of an example. Um, <laughs> there's this concept that a, a friend told me about where, um, if you look at statues of the Buddha, he has this slight smile on his face. Um, okay. And my friend called it the existential giggle. And oh. his idea was that the Buddha had this slight smile on his face as he reached enlightenment during this moment of meditation, not because he was so wise and happy, but because he thought, damn, I really want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right now. That's and the way to the way that my friend kind of explained this is that's the absurdity of existence, right? Is we have these really serious, meaningful experiences and psychedelics can make you take yourself really seriously. And to me, funny things happening on psychedelics feel just like that is being like a Buddha uh, on the cusp of this incredible experience. And then you see or think something so silly that you think, okay, I'm just a talking ape. Like I don't have to take myself this seriously. Um, and it's a really beautiful experience. I, I think the best laughter of my life has probably been on mushrooms. I, I, I love that. Joe, do you have uh, some funny uh, examples, some funny experiences? Yes, I love that you're bringing this into awareness too, because I've heard of mushrooms referred to as the children of the psychedelic world. Like, think of just little giggling, playing, like running around. <laughs> like, it's just a really uh, fun and connecting experience. Um, I think, like, your intention going into a psychedelic experience can absolutely be fun and laughter. And it doesn't always have to be like, yeah, connecting with really deep things um, because just like Jess said, it, it encompasses everything. And like uh, Buddha wanting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, like, yes, like we also have those thoughts and like normalize that. Um, I'm trying to think of like a really funny experience um, that I've had in psych with psychedelics, but honestly, it's, yeah, everything's always quite funny. <laughs> no matter <laughs> okay. looking at a door and you're like, wow, doors are the weirdest thing. Or like looking at your own eyebrows, you're like, how does hair grow there? Like, you know, it's like all these things that are normalized, but it's like, just think of a childlike energy, childlike questions that um, can come up if you have children or been around children. It's like, those questions tend to come up and they're just completely silly and you have to just be light and laugh as well. I absolutely agree. I, to me, um, 
the psychedelic experience really makes you aware of the obvious and throws it in your face. Like a, as a sober person, I would never stare at my door and think what an interesting contour to the wood or that's so interesting that I feel the need to have this piece of wood in oh. front of my room so no one can see me. It just really, and the healing experiences are that way too. My healing experiences have always been really obvious things that I just hadn't thought about because I keep my mind so busy. Um, and yeah, that's the kind of thing that you laugh at. Like Joe said, is, you know, seeing a door or thinking, you know, why do I eat with a spoon? And it's really fun. That's really funny. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to know that there's, you know, some humorous parts to this. Um, I want to change the conversation to the national push on psychedelics. Um, Joe, how has your work changed over the years? What do you think is, you know, kind of like the reason for the slow embrace, at least on a national level, uh, for psychedelic medicines, um, even though there are, you know, there's strong documentation that they're very beneficial? Yeah, learning more about the history. Um, I was born in 1993. Um, and so I, was I had parents and grandparents that were around during the war on drugs. And although, yeah, I was growing up during that time, I was also of the era where D.A.R.E. programs were essential in fifth grade classrooms, where we learned to say no to drugs and other substances and how dangerous they were. And so that's what I grew up with. And then just starting to learn more of the history of we have, you know, cave paintings symbolizing magic mushrooms from over 7,000 years ago. Like human beings have been using psychedelics for so long, but it has been so lost at the same time. We know the war on drugs was specifically targeted towards people of color and you know, the criminalization of people of color. And I think that there is an immense hurting in the United States from my perception, um, from the skyrocketing rates of mental illness and need for something different. Um, that's why I feel so excited about the psychedelic renaissance because it's something different. It's exactly that. Um, I became introduced to psychedelics um, in 2018, so not that long ago. Um, I was in graduate school at the University of Denver in their social work program. Um, and I was fascinated to learn about all these articles that do exactly what I've been explaining of like, you can look at your world in a different way and it sticks. Like it seems so much like this harm reduction way of like, rather than taking antidepressants the rest of your life, like how amazing would it be that you can reframe the life that you're living and like live it in a more authentic way. Um, and so my work in 2018, I remember trying to find research articles about psychedelic therapy and it was really hard and far and few in between and talking with my professor back in the day and like, can I write this? And he's like, this is a super weird thing to want to write about, but if you can find the research, sure. Um, so it started there and just in my communities, psychedelics are pretty normal use. Like it's really normalized. 
Um, yet with people back home, I'm from Michigan originally, it's really um, not normalized and everyone kind of looks at me like maybe the little crazy mushroom lady. Um, and I think with this normalization brings, um, like it can bring more regulations as well as legalization, just like you're talking about Justin. I'm so happy that you're behind that movement because that's where we're headed, right? Especially in the U S especially in Oregon, um, psychedelic therapy hopefully will be a thing after, you know, therapists and other um, qualified professionals can go through trainings to then be able to offer this in a certain way. And I don't think that means that all these underground places will disappear um, that are already holding psychedelic ceremonies or people will not do it with their friends out in the woods, which I think is an equally beautiful experience. But Again, yeah, like Jess said, do your research um, because this is becoming much more popular and people get excited about it. And then it's like, okay, where do I go with it? Um, so that's why I love to offer integration therapy because, you know, it's, it's legal that I can help in intention setting and integration afterwards, but then you're individualizing your journey, your experience to whatever you want. Perfect. Jess, I want to hop over to you. You are currently writing for Entheoscope magazine. It's a psychedelic publication. What, what do you think are the biggest hurdles to mainstream acceptance of psychedelic medicines? That's an interesting question. Um, it's interesting that you uh, ask Entheoscope, uh, you, that you loop Entheoscope in with that, because I, I don't usually think of it in that context. Um, I will say that I have very rarely met anyone who disagrees with legalizing mushrooms. Uh, I acknowledge that sure I'm in my little bubble of college students and recent graduates who are really into mushrooms, but I've also campaigned at events for veterans and police officers. And every person who I spoke to said, thank you for doing this. I completely agree. Um, so for me, I don't think that it's a, a matter of the public accepting it. To me, it seems more that it's resistance on a governmental level to uh, putting these legal changes into action. Uh, I think if it was on the ballot, it would pass in a lot of states and cities. Uh, I do, something that we talk about a lot in Entheoscope is this idea of the psychedelic aesthetic and psychedelic cliches. I do think that's a major hurdle is that we have this cultural association of any psychedelic substance with uh, hippies of the 60s and the anti-war movement. Um, and those, those cultural associations with radicalism and uh, leftism and almost like a delusional or magical thinking, I, I think those holds are still there. And sometimes we reinforce them when we, if we wanted our magazine to have this stereotypical psychedelic uh, aesthetic, and if we were gonna talk about you know, the Grateful Dead or something like that. I, I think those are things that do contribute to the public being hesitant is when we, we put psychedelics in a bubble ourselves, when we force this aesthetic that it's something for young people who are uh, radical hippies, um, who are into meditation. One thing I really try to do uh, in my writing and in my work is to remove myself and my work from that psychedelic aesthetic. Uh, I make a point to, I would love to like dye my hair blue or get a, a crazy piercing. And I don't do that because I want to be an example that you can be 
interested in psychedelics and you can benefit from psychedelics. And you can also be a businesswoman. You can be a working professional who fits in with the outside world. Um, it's really important, I think, to not get so hung up on um, these old, uh, outdated cultural associations with psychedelics. Uh, so it's important, I think, for, you know, we have organizations like uh, ketamine clinics. The, the ketamine clinic that I work for talks a lot about not not getting too crazy with like tapestries that they hang um, just because, you know, that's something that uh, makes psychedelics more accessible. I think psychedelics are made more accessible when we don't put them in that sort of subcultural bubble when we say this is just a medicine and anybody can take medicine. Okay. I want to change the topic here a little bit and start talking about racial equity and the uh, psychedelic movement. Uh, Joe, on your website, you note that one of your core values is equity, uh, with 20% of your profits going to um, communities of color. Why do you think equity is so important in these psychedelic spaces? Uh, because we live in the United States of America, which it has so much history that I wasn't taught growing up of the demonization of people of color um, and the racism that still exists in our world. I believe that I am racist because of the society I grew up in. How could I not be? And we need to make these active contributions and active like, intentions to be anti-racist. And so I was trying to find a company where I'm like, I want to believe in the values that they're putting forward. And I was just not finding it over and over. And so when I decided to make this leap and start my own company this year, I was like, this needs to be a center. Um, one of the yeah three values that I carry is equity that we to establish equity. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this meme, but it's like three kids at a baseball game and it's like a, a tall person, a medium tall person, a small person. And equity is like giving help to those, the medium tall person and the shorter person, like giving them the leg up so that they have the same view. They have the same opportunities as everybody else in our society. And I believe as a white person, I've been given way more opportunities in my life, my life because of my white privilege. And specifically in the psychedelic space, I want to be, a, or in my company, in my space, I want to do it in the right way. And for me, that looks like, yeah, giving away 20% of my profits um, to the Ancestor Project, which allows people of color to access funding to go to ceremonies, um, wherever that is in a legal space. And so that feels really important and like, yeah, a core belief for me as a social worker, as a human being, because so many times um, when something is new in our society, right? The people who have money get to make more money. And I don't want the psychedelic movement to be in those same lines. And so this is how I believe, and this is how I'm doing it. 
And I'm always open to feedback um, if that's not in the right light or way, um, because my my soul is in this and um, I'm not, of course, I want to be here to make a living for myself and I want to do the best for Mother Earth. Um, and yeah, of course, maybe that's a little too hippie to say sometimes. <laughs> and that's what I truly believe. Right. Jess, what do you think about kind of like, um, I guess, like drugs, especially psychedelics and their contact with communities of color? What, you know, what do you think about equity? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts about this. I, I do think it's really important for people of color to be directly in this conversation uh, and for us to be asking those questions, uh, because like Joe, I'm also white. Um, and any understanding that I have, I guess, kind of inherently has to be purely theoretical. Um, but in, from what I've read and people I've spoke with, um, so I, I follow some Black creators who emphasize healing from racial trauma and intergenerational trauma with psychedelics. Uh, people of color are wow. historically the, the primary target of the war on drugs. And now we have this drug that research is suggesting could be incredible and groundbreaking for treating intergenerational trauma and PTSD. Uh, so that's a perspective that I've run across. I also, um, I recently had a, a long talk with one of the founders of Decriminalized Nature. Decriminalized Nature is an indigenous-led organization for psychedelic decriminalization. We spoke about peyote um, and the, the leader of decriminalization, Carlos, told me how for him, um, this is this is his culture and this is how he heals from intergenerational trauma is by sitting with peyote uh and for many indigenous people i think that that's a, a source of power and the fact that we're criminalizing peyote uh and criminalizing cultivating it is really doing a disservice to the people who cultivated that medicine for thousands of years um and now we're we're taking it away or we're trying to regulate it into, you know, you can only do it in this uh, formal medicinal therapeutic setting. Uh, so my understanding from an outsider's perspective is I, I think that people of color are uniquely traumatized in the United States and psychedelics, as we know, uh, are really helpful for people who have trauma uh, and just with the, the larger context of the war on drugs it's really powerful to put uh, medicinal drugs in the hands of people who have been harmed by the war on drugs and then I think also when we think about indigenous communities who have used uh, medicines like psilocybin and peyote uh, it's absolutely ridiculous to say that they shouldn't have access to their own medicine or that we should uh, that the U.S. government should have a monopoly on how it's used and who gets to grow it. Okay. I feel um, so much wiser. <laughs> I, I feel like I entered this conversation not knowing so much about mushrooms and psychedelics. And um, thank you both for, you know, you know, this wealth of information. I like to end interviews asking people what's something that makes them optimistic or hopeful. Um, and we could start with you know, either you, Jess or Joe, what makes you optimistic about the future as far as uh, maybe the decriminalization or the acceptance or, or whatever? For me, I think what makes me optimistic is 
As I said earlier, uh, I've done tabling events to advocate for the decriminalization of drugs and every person I talked to, whether they were a veteran, a former police officer or a college student, um, you know, once they once I talked to them about it and it was presented to them in a way that made sense, I, everybody supported it. I really don't think that we're living in the 60s where there's a, a crowd that's hippies who are really into drugs and then a crowd who really hates the hippies and really hates drugs. I think our society is very open-minded. Uh, we look at the state of Oregon that has decriminalized possession of all drugs under a certain quantity, um, which is fantastic. And, you know, we have so much research showing that criminalizing drugs doesn't do anything to help reduce addiction, to help uh, reduce incarceration. It only makes people's lives harder. Uh, so what makes me optimistic is just the, the people that I talk to. Um, I've traveled to Colorado and California, and I currently live in New Jersey. Uh, and in all of those places, I've found people who are part of this movement and who are putting their energy and all of their love into it. Uh, and I think just knowing how passionate people are and all of the work that's happening that people aren't getting paid for, they're just doing it because they love it and because they're passionate about it. Uh, that's what makes me really happy uh, and hopeful that we're we're going to do the psychedelic uh, revolution right this time. Great, I love that. Joe. Yes. Uh, I just like my whole body just like steams when I get to talk about this and hear other people talk about it. So just feeling a lot of gratitude um, <laughs> right now. And Good. especially, yeah, I think what makes me hopeful is this idea of like reconnection with nature. Um, I described a little bit how I grew up and I felt really disconnected from nature. I didn't know any species of trees or birds or, you know, whatever that was around me. And now learning Michigan has a wealth of mushrooms. And I'm like, what was I doing all growing up? Like, I'm so excited to go back there and like maybe go with my grandma out in the woods. Like, I feel really hopeful because of this idea that psychedelics can reconnect us with nature. And I think nature is incredibly healing. I believe nature has all of the answers for us human beings, like the strifes that we have if we're willing to listen. And I think it's a path um, for us to get there um, is with psychedelics. Yes, Joe, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will uh, as well. Uh, it's definitely a topic that we typically don't delve into, but um, really, really thankful for both of your guys' expertise. This was fantastic. Thank you so much again. As we end this season, I want to end this episode with a thank you to all of our guests. We touched on so many topics from Ukraine and QAnon to Florida's Don't Say Gay Law and the French election. To each and every guest, we're so grateful that you took some time to speak with us about such intense and, and interesting stories. I also couldn't end this season without a huge shout out to our production team. I, I haven't laughed so much in a long time. Our sound team, you guys are a dream and you keep us running. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the long hours, for the pitches, reaching out to guests, doing research. You guys are the best part of the Delve. 
So as we take this break to enjoy the summer, I want to wish our listeners a peaceful and calm summer. May we all come back refreshed. I'm surely looking forward to some rest. And we'll be back in the fall for season six. That's exciting. Season six. It's going to be a really exciting exciting new season, and, and I'm really pumped. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you in a few months. I'm Chaylin, and this is The Delve.